You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, we bring back fan favorite Brian Feraldi. Brian is one of the top contributors to the investing community and is widely popular on Twitter and YouTube as he has a combined following of over 500,000 fans. On today's episode, we discuss the valuation mindset spectrum and how we as investors can determine which investing approach fits our own personality and temperament. At the end of the episode, Brian also gives us an updated assessment of NVIDIA's valuation and his thoughts on the progress of one of his top holdings, which has been a big winner over the past decade, Mercado Libre. We always enjoy having Brian on the show, and I really hope you enjoy this discussion as much as I did. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today we're going to be chatting about the valuation mindset spectrum with Brian Feraldi. Brian, it's always great having you back on the show. Clay, thank you for inviting me back. I always enjoy being on. So let's just dive right into the first question here, Brian. What is the valuation mindset spectrum? And what was the premise for educating people on this? When I first started investing, I think I did what a lot of investors do. They immediately gravitate towards the teachings of Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, Charlie Munger. And when they, they are value investors who said things like, all intelligent investing is value investing. And that makes so much sense to me. However, what's so interesting is that there's also another mindset when it comes to investing that is purely focused on high growth companies, a venture capitalist mindset. And they offer essentially diametrically opposed opinions and advice about investing. And keeping those two mindsets in mind was always really challenging for me because I greatly respect people like Warren Buffett. And I also greatly respect people like Mark Andreessen, who, who are venture capitalists. Only over time, did I realize that valuation isn't either or, it is more of a spectrum. And where any individual investor thinks about valuation really depends on where on this spectrum between valuation doesn't matter to valuation is everything, it exists. So I think a big first step with figuring out how to value any business is knowing what type of investor you are. And it's critical to know where you lie on that spectrum. Let's step more into that spectrum. You mentioned Warren Buffett and Mark Andreessen. Can you just sort of highlight how the Buffets of the world think, how the Andreessens of the world think, as well as the investors in the middle? Sure. So let's think, let's imagine that you are a venture capitalist and the Google guys come to you and they say, Hey, would you invest in our business today? It doesn't really matter the valuation that they offered you if you got into Google early. If it was a $1 million valuation, a $10 million valuation, or even a $100 million valuation, if you invested in Google early at any valuation rate, you did incredibly well as an investor. The right decision was putting money into Google and the valuation that you paid was almost a a non-unfactor. That is one extreme mindset. And it really shows if you buy the next Google or the next Amazon or the Netflix early, the valuation that you pay almost, almost doesn't matter. 
However, those are, of course, rare companies. Finding companies that can go up in value 1,000 or 10,000x over time is extremely hard to do. On the other side, on the other side of the spectrum is, is value investing, where you're trying to figure out what is the value of this asset and how can I put money to work in this asset at a lower price than it's currently trading at. That builds in a margin of safety to your purchase that really protects you from losing a lot of money on the downside, which we all know is Warren Buffett's rule number one and rule number two of investing well. So what's so fascinating is that both valuation mindsets can work. You just have to know which type of investor you are. And how does this tie into the history of value investing? I know you've talked about you know, history and how this sort of ties in. So I'd love for you to elaborate on this as well. If you look back at the 140-ish year of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, I think that there are five distinct phases that valuation has gone through during that time. And, and knowing the history, I think, is actually really important. So prior to 1929, prior to the Great Crash of, of 1929, the stock market was essentially the Wild West. The data that was given, provided to investors was extremely limited. It was largely unregulated. The SEC did not exist at all. And back then, stocks were very much viewed as gambling devices. In fact, one reason that back then companies paid out such a large portion of their earnings as dividends, that was one way that they could prove to investors that they were actually making money. So companies were not encouraged to reinvest in themselves. They were encouraged to pay out that money to, to, to investors to prove that they were actually profitable. Now, immediately preceding that time came the crash of 1929 and then the ensuing uh, Great Depression. A horrible time economically in America's history. Unemployment rates skyrocketed, peaked to trough. The uh, US stock market fell by like 89%. Plenty of people went completely belly up. And in the wake of that, that's when uh, uh, FDR came in and really enacted some changes that put some regulation around Wall Street. That included the creation of the SEC in 1933 and 1934, the passage of the Glass-Steagall Act, and that helped to regulate companies and securities that would come public. After that period happened, I think is really when value investing was first, first invented. It was invented in part by a guy named John Burr Williams, who wrote a book in 1938 called The Theory of Value Investment. And that was the first time that concepts like intrinsic value and discounted cash flow was really created. In 1949, that's when Ben Graham published his a very popular book, The Intelligent Investor. And he introduced concepts such as margin of safety, buying companies below their book value, and really focusing in on the price to book ratio. Now, after that period, and really after World War II, I think came the next phase of valuation. In 1958, Phil Fisher published a very popular book called Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And he focused on buying businesses that could substantially grow their profits over time to lead to superior returns. And in the 1950s, that's when a young Warren Buffett studied those books, Phil Fisher's book, Ben Graham's book, John Williams Burr book, and developed his own investing style. At the time, he famously said, I'm basically 85% Ben Graham, 15% Fisher. And during the, the age from, let's say, the 19, 1940s, uh, 2000s, this was the age of mass media, the age of consumerism. 
It was still hard for investors to find information on companies, but it did exist. That information was largely limited to big mutual fund managers and big institutions. And during that phase, we saw the rise of people like Peter Lynch and Charlie Munger, who focused on quality businesses that had wide enduring moats. You would try and buy those businesses with a margin of safety and let those companies compound over time. That was the style of investing that worked out so well. And I would argue that the fifth valuation phase, the one that we're in right now, really started in the mid-90s to, to early 2000s, thanks to the adoption of the internet. It was really during that time that we saw a massive rise um, in, in venture capitalists. We saw the internet come in and disrupt so many things. We saw data become incredibly easy for investors to access, even individual investors like myself to access for free. We saw lots of companies come public because the world was awash in cash. Companies could now focus on growing their revenue, taking advantage of markets and actually losing money for long periods of time. That wasn't even an option to companies that came public prior to then. And we've seen uh, investors become famous during this period like Mark Andreessen or growth investors like David Gardner or uh, Kathy Wood. And their new valuation techniques emerge, such as focusing on total addressable market opportunity and reverse DCF models. So once you understand the, the history of them, you can kind of understand how valuation has grown in importance over time. You've been on our show a number of times talking about how a lot of investors view certain investments through their lens, and it might not be the appropriate way to view a company and how valuation sort of fits into it. You know, One example is the PE ratio. People use the PE ratio on these earlier stage companies. I'd like to transition to discuss how investors can best decide you know, where on this valuation spectrum they should sort of fit or how do they decide what sort of game they should play? Because you talked about how all these investors, different people have been successful with different strategies. So how should people think about where they fit on the spectrum? Yeah, great quote by Oswath Demotorin is the most important investor to study thoroughly is yourself, which I totally, I totally love uh, that, that phrase. Figuring out what type of investor you are can be incredibly helpful to not only figuring out what kind of investments you're looking for, but also what kind of investing advice you should follow. So again, on one extreme end of the valuation mindset spectrum, you have venture capitalists and growth investors. Those type of investors de-emphasize valuation. The only thing that they are focused on is the upside potential of the business. On the other extreme end of the, of the mindset spectrum is the Ben Graham, Michael Burry type of thinking where valuation is first and foremost the most important filter to put investments through and anything has a value if you buy it cheap enough. In between those two extreme styles is what's called GARP investors, which is more growth at a reasonable price. Those type of investors are willing to pay a premium to own companies that have superior growth prospects, but companies that have lower growth prospects, they're not willing to pay as much of a premium uh, for. So valuation is an important part of that process. Figuring out where you are on that spectrum depends on numerous things to say uh, your personality is, is, a, is a huge one as well as your risk tolerance. But four other things I'll, I'll throw out there. First is your, is your time horizon. If you're going to be investing like a growth investor and a venture capitalist, you better have a multi-year, multi-decade time horizon because it can take a long time for those early stage companies to execute against the game plan ahead of them and for the compounding to really, really kick in. Another question to ask yourself is, how comfortable are you 
with volatility, not in theory, in, in reality. If you're going to be investing in growth companies, companies that are in early stage of development, you better be ready, willing, and able to stomach occasional 20, 30, 50, even 70% drawdowns in those stocks, which is not easy to do. If you're not comfortable with volatility, you should add more towards the value investor side of the spectrum. Another, another question to ask is, are you a bargain hunter uh, at, at, uh, at your very nature? Uh, th- this is how I started out investing. Uh, in my real life, whenever I'm purchasing uh, goods uh, for my house, I, I look for bargains. I like to know that I'm getting a good value for something. And I apply that same mindset to the markets when I first started investing. I was looking for stocks that were cheap and dividend yields uh, that, that were high. That kind of appealed to me. If that appeals to you, perhaps you're naturally drawn to value investing. Uh, and the final thing is, uh, what is what matters more to you? Does protecting the downside of your investment matter more to you? Or does going after the upside matter m- more to you? If upside is a thing that you're after and you're willing to give up downside, well, then you should think about adopting a venture capitalist approach to valuation. If you really want downside protection, well, then you better really get to know how valuation works. It's interesting when you look at the venture capital approach to valuation, all you can really look at is what is the overall market potential or the TAM and how much can they capture from that total market? It's an approach where you're purely looking far out into the future. Then you turn to the pure value approach. You're looking at just the earnings and you're not as concerned as where the business is going to be 10 or 20 years down the line. So all you really care about is what is tangible and what's happening today with the business. So it's interesting to me to compare the difference in time horizons between those two approaches. And you actually have six valuation methods we can use in our own valuation toolkit, depending on where the business is in its growth cycle. Could you walk us through these six valuation methods? There's lots of ways that you can value a company. And a big mistake that investors make, myself included, is they get to know one valuation style and they apply that valuation technique to all companies at all times. I think that that's a mistake to do so. In fact, I think it's really important to know what phase of the business growth cycle a company is currently in before you can know what type of valuation style you should use. For example, if a company is in the startup phase or in the hyper growth phase, it's small, it's young, it's rapidly growing, the future potential of that business is incredibly wide. If it executes against its opportunity, it could go up 10, 50, 100, 1,000 times in value. Doing so would be incredibly hard, but that's certainly in the realm of possibilities. Also in the realm of possibilities is that company is going to run out of money and, and, and go to zero. So the range of outcomes is very huge. On those type of companies, early stage companies, I don't think DCF models or reverse DCF models have any real value at at all. I also don't think that multiples have much value at all because oftentimes the only uh, metric that a company has to show is sales. And sometimes those sales are very meager. So for companies that are in the early stage, I think it makes sense to focus on total addressable market analysis, which is simply how much revenue is available to this company on any given year. Now, once you know that number, you can do some analysis from there to figure out, okay, what is a realistic market share for this company to capture? What are its margins going to look like once this company scales? What, are its, what could its future multiple trade at if this company executes successfully? And from there, you can back in what kind of valuation makes sense today given this company's potential. Now, that kind of analysis is very squishy. There's not a lot of hard numbers that you can go on. But in, when a company is in early stage, 
you don't have much data to look at. So you have to make more educated uh, guesses. As a company grows and as it matures, and as its revenue starts to tick up, that's when you can start to see some meaningful improvement in the company's income statement. Companies eventually start to produce positive gross profit, and that number grows. Companies then start to produce positive operating income, and then that number grows. And then finally, companies start to produce free cash flow and earnings, and those numbers grow. As the company is moving up, maturing, and the business growth development cycle is moving up, that's when you can start to look at multiple analysis. When a company is early and sales is the only number that you can look at, the only option you have from a multiple perspective is to look at the price to sales ratio. As gross profit continues to grow, I'm actually a big fan of calculating a company's price to gross profit ratio, which is not a number or a metric that I hear many other investors talking about, but I think it's an incredibly useful number to look at. As the company continues to mature, then you can gradually introduce things like price to EBITDA, or price to EBT, or even price to earnings, or price to free cash flow once a company's on there. So that would be something that you, uh, those analyses you can do on companies that are in the semi mature, semi growth stage. After a company is reliably producing free cash flow, which typically the company is fairly mature at that point, then and only then do I think it makes sense to look at dis- discounted cash flow models and reverse discounted cash flow models. Prior to then, you're making so many assumptions about the company's growth rate and the company's margin profile that I don't think that DCF models and reverse DCF models are really that helpful in that early stage. However, those type of valuation methods can be very useful once a company is in the mature phase. And you could also argue that in the mature phase, things like TAM analysis or the price to sales multiple really aren't useful at all. The bigger point is that Businesses go through a relatively predictable business growth cycle, and you need to know which valuation method you should use depending on which phase that the company is. And you can get a lot of the trouble if you use the wrong valuation method on the on a company at the wrong time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I'm curious if there's an area of this, you know, growth cycle and spectrum, an area you believe is more, I don't know a better phrase than more winnable by your average investor, or do you think it's just a matter of investor preference? I, I firmly believe it's, it's a matter of uh, investor uh, preference. For m- myself, I like to invest in companies that are in the self-funding or in the operating leverage phase. These are companies that have reached the point where they're no longer using, losing money. However, they, they're, they're, they're not making a lot of profit. They're, they're perhaps right at the break-even phase or could be there in the near future. Companies in this phase are easy to misvalue because a lot of people, a lot of investors look at the price-to-earnings ratio, at the price-to-free cash flow ratio, which are often very inflated because their profits have not matured. And it's very easy to draw the conclusion, this company is over, overvalued. However, uh, companies that are in that phase that can grow at an above average rate for 5, 10, or even 20 years are compounding machines if you, can, if you can get them right. I like to look for companies like that, buy them, and let the company execute against its, uh, its opportunity. And if you can find a handful of those companies that execute the way a Lululemon has or a way that Netflix has, you can earn absolutely gargantuan returns while taking much less risk than you would if those companies were still in the startup or the hyper growth phase. But I think that investors can do well in any phase so long as they know they understand the nuance of what goes along with investing in that phase. I'm somewhat hesitant to you know, throw the terms value investors and growth investors here, but I almost have no better terms to use it here in this context. But I'm going to go ahead with it anyways. We have a lot of value investors in the audience, which you know, it's a term nowadays doesn't really mean a lot because people can see value in many different ways. And skeptics of quote unquote growth investing of that strategy, they might say that paying up for a highly disruptive company, it might not be a reliable way to invest because the market can tend to become pretty optimistic about these types of companies and they can be prone to facing a lot of competition. And then you throw on top of that things like a charismatic CEO and over, overly promotional founder. And you know a lot of people just get really excited about it. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that sort of viewpoint and how you might respond to that. Oh, I think that's t- totally true. It can be a very tricky way uh, to, to invest because companies that are viewed as, as growth companies with very exciting uh, future ahead of them uh, often get caught up in, in the hype cycle where there becomes a phase when the company executes very well, its stock price goes up, and then the stock price continues to go up and up and up as more investors pile in and pile in. 
And eventually, the stock price can get so high that the expectations built into that company are well beyond what the company can, can deliver, and there's an inevitable fall. Uh, we've seen exactly that thing, uh, exactly that uh, play out over the last three years um, in, in, in a fast forward phase, uh, given the huge boom that we saw in 2020, uh, 2020 and 2021, and the ensuing bust that we saw uh, throughout 2022. So if you're the type of investor, if you're a value investor, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, I'm not participating in that at all. I want nothing to do with looking for uh, the next, uh, the next uh, growth stock that will be able to perform, uh, survive that hype cycle, and then um, execute uh, from there. Uh, however, if you look back to the, to the 2000s, we saw an enormous bubble in lots of companies, and the ensuing bust wiped out tons of businesses. However, that ones that survived that phase have become household names uh, today. I mean, Amazon is obviously the poster child for such things, but the PayPal was also born in the exact same uh, a period. So it can be very challenging to figure out which companies are going to be able to go through that hype cycle, emerge the other side, and continue to, to execute. But if you, can, if you can do that successfully, you can earn life-changing returns on some of those investments. I think a couple other points that relate to that is you definitely have to have, have a really long time horizon. You have to be able to hold it out for, to see that sort of long tail really play out. And then the other important point, I think, is power laws, where a small, very few number of stocks drive the majority of the returns. And just holding one or two of those out of you know huge portfolio, it really just pulls the whole portfolio ahead. So I think power laws is another concept that's really important to understand if you're taking that sort of strategy. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that power law uh, strategy that you're talking about is the reason that index fund investing uh, works so well. Yes, you're guaranteed to essentially get every single loser, but you're also guaranteed to hold every single uh, mega winner. And if you look historically over time, it's only a minority of stocks that literally account for the vast majority of the returns of the market uh, over time. So yes, if you're going to be investing that style, you have to go in knowing that you're going to be wrong a whole lot and literally a handful of investments will make or break your portfolio. But that is how stock investing works. Now, some growth stocks are now trading below or around where they were in 2019, 2020, that time frame. Companies that come to mind are like Roku, Square. There's, there's a long list of names. And then the sales of these, many of these companies are much higher than they were during that time period. And then I think about some other growth companies that are, you know, have done quite well. They're trading at all-time highs or maybe near all-time highs. I think about Nvidia and Tesla. What are some of the things you look for in a higher growth name to help filter out and distinguish value accretive growth versus maybe value destructive growth? Yeah, the thing that, that I, I key in on is you can be a hyper growth company that, is, uh, that has a corporate philosophy with we're going to break even or we're going to produce a certain amount of free cash flow or a certain amount of, of profits. And, and some companies uh, reliably uh, do that. You also have companies that are, that are hyper growth companies and their mentality, their philosophy is we're going to deploy all of our capital back into reinvest growth and we're going to lose money and depend on outside investors for years, years to come. I think that those companies in the latter group, the ones that were dependent on raising capital from outside investors, they have been hit very hard uh, and rightfully so. 
because for those companies, a falling stock price is a massive, massive problem. Uh, when your valuation uh, c- c- collapse, when you need to, and you need to raise new, new capital, doing so can be horrifically uh, dilutive uh, to the company uh, itself. But if you're in the self-funding phase and you've gone go, go through that uh, process, a falling stock price is a pr- is a nuisance um, for for a number of perspective. But it's not a massive problem from a capital raising perspective. So when I think about the companies that have survived that process the best and have bounced back, the, a common theme that I see is many of them were further along on the business uh, growth cycle, and many of them were already producing net income and profits. So how can you tell if a company is producing a growth that leads to shareholder value? The answer is. Are they generating profits? Another piece I think I and many other investors struggle with is thinking about stock-based compensation. Do you have any tips for investors in working through stock-based compensation, whether it be a certain percentage of revenue that might be acceptable, or is it focusing more on the company's vision and their management and long-term thesis, or maybe even a just simply subtracting out the stock-based compensation out of the profits and then just kind of filtering it out and not thinking about it too much. Yeah, you ask 10 different investors their views on stock-based compensation, you're going to get 10 different answers. The same is, is true for companies themselves. Some companies have very generous, almost egregious levels of stock-based compensation just built into the DNA of, of the company. Other companies, by their very nature, are very stingy uh, with, with stock-based uh, compensation, and they, and they only dole it out of uh, small amounts. As a general statement, for if a company is rapidly diluting investors, it better be putting up eye-popping revenue growth numbers for investors to be willing to, to stomach uh, that number. If a company is growing its revenue 50% per year reliably for many years, investors are willing to put up with 5%, 8%, even, even double-digit dilution due to stock-based compensation if they believe the opportunity ahead is, is really huge. However, if that same company growth rate falls from 50% per year down to 20% per year, and the company is still diluting investors at some very high, high level, that company is going to get whacked. And that company's management conference call with investors should focus in on what's with this egregious stock-based uh, compensation. My personal rule of thumb, and it's just, a, it's just a rule of thumb, is if a company is growing extremely rapidly, more than 25% per year, I'm okay with 3 to 5% dilution being due to stock-based uh, compensation. More than that is when I kind of get a little uh, perturbed by it. And if I see less than that, that's definitely a, a positive sign. For companies that are growing slower than that, I don't want anything more than 1% to 2% dilution annually. And I know that Buffett's uh, rule of thumb is 1% dilution maximum per year. Uh, however, Buffett invests in companies that are typically in the, in the capital return uh, phase. So he, he's actually looking for companies that are reducing their share count due to stock buybacks. But if you look back at companies like Salesforce.com, for example, Salesforce.com has been issuing tremendous amounts of stock-based compensation to its employees ever since it was founded. And that stock-based compensation remains high to this day. The dilution that uh, investors have had to endure over its 20-year period on the public markets has been very, very high. And that has not stopped that company from delivering multi-bagger market-beating returns for its investors. The reason they've been able to get away with it is their growth rate has been so high for so long. That's why nuance with uh, understanding and looking at and judging stock-based compensation is so important. Totally agree. And another idea that 
has had a really profound impact on me being a host of the show here. It's the idea of base rates. When I think about the differences between a growth company and a company that might be a little bit more stable is the base rates between the two. Let's just take a company like Tesla, for example, like Tesla in 2012, totally different company than the Tesla of 2023. I think it's pretty difficult to justify a pretty large allocation to a company like that. You know, very real risk of it going bust. Musk has said that there were times where, you know, they're weeks away from, you know, not having cash to pay employees or anything else. And I think, you know, when you have that very real risk, I think it justifies a relatively small position in a portfolio and almost thinking of it like more like a venture type bet. And then I think about on the flip side, I look at investors like Charlie Munger, Nick Sleep, and they find something that they're almost certain that's going to be able to continue to grow for 10, 20 plus years. And when they find that, they're going to bet big on it. And that's because they believe the base rate or the odds that they're right is really, really high. And to use an example, they both those investors bet early on Costco and they still hold that investment 20 years later. I'm curious if you agree with this assessment of base rates and how it maybe applies to this valuation spectrum, if at all. Yeah, I think that that's a uh, wonderful point that, uh, that you brought up. In fact, I think this gets largely into the debate that many investors have about should your portfolio be concentrated or should it be diversified? Personally, my, my view is that if you are a venture capitalist, if you're out there looking for companies that can 10, 50, 100x, it really makes sense to diversify your portfolio and make dozens, uh, dozens of very small bets on a percentage basis. Because what you're looking for is that next Google, is that next Apple, is that next Amazon. And if you can buy, if you can buy that that early, even a tiny percentage can literally return the entire value of your, of, of your uh, portfolio and, and then some. So if you're going to invest like a venture capitalist, diversify. On the flip side, if you're going to be a value investor and you're going after businesses that are big, dependable, like Costco, like Target, like Walmart, companies that are going to be around for long periods of time, I think it makes much more sense to be a concentrated investor and put lots of capital into high conviction, high probability stocks and really focus in, uh, in, in on those stocks. So it, yeah, I think this the concept of base bait really matters for uh, answering the, should I be diversified or should I be concentrated question? One thing I absolutely love about your YouTube channel is the level of transparency you guys have and all the amazing content you guys are sharing. And over the past 12 to 18 months, you, along with many other investors, have seen significant volatility in your portfolio. So I'm curious if you could share some of the biggest lessons that you pulled from that experience that, you know, it's just a much, much different time period than any other point in your investing career or many other investing careers. Yeah, 2022 was a humbling period for a lot of investors, myself included. I really started, I started investing in, in 2004 and essentially from 2008 all the way up until uh, 2022, interest rates almost didn't matter because they were so incredibly low for such a long uh, period of time that that, that warped a, a lot of, of markets. And I think that that's one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why growth companies did so well uh, over the last 15 years is that, um, is, is that interest rates were so incredibly uh, low. One thing that reversed in 2022 was obviously interest rates came back with a vengeance. The, the Fed raised interest rates at the fastest rate they'd, they'd ever done. 
And understandably, asset prices and asset values were severely impacted. And those that were hit the hardest were the asset values that, that have the longest duration. So long duration bonds and high growth companies that are losing money. Those are the longest duration stock assets that are out there. So rightfully so, we saw valuations absolutely get clobbered um, from extreme high levels in 2021 to more normalized numbers that we saw in 2022. So one thing that, that, that I learned is, is just how impactful uh, interest rates are on affecting uh, the valuation of markets. It also taught me during, during that period that the value of having cash in an economic crisis. And, and really, for the first time in my investing career, I'm now actively considering putting money into the bond market. I never even considered that a, a couple of years ago because the, the yields that you would get on bonds would be so incredibly low compared to the risk that you, you were taking. So it wasn't even an alternative asset class. You could say the same thing about holding cash in a bank. When banks are paying zero or 0.25% interest, you're, you're going to lose money compared to inflation because the, the rates are so low. Now that rates are, are more normalized and that bonds are actually a viable, uh, attractive alternative uh, when compared to, 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 to stocks. So 2020 through 2022 taught me a lot of painful lessons. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. 
Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I think another one I think a lot of people sort of learned is as the market continued to hit new all-time highs almost every single year, then people would be very hesitant to raise cash. So in 2021, very few investors likely were raising cash. And then, you know, 2022, many people found that to be a big mistake. So in hindsight, I think that's another really big lesson too. Absolutely. Or how about this one? Investing is hard. Investing uh, is is hard. Investing the, the right way is very, very challenging. Not only do you have to be good with securities a selection if you go that route, but the markets play a tr- put a tremendous amount of pressure on the psychology that you face. You can have euphoria when stocks are going up and utterly depression when stocks are, are going down. Analyzing stocks is hard. Dealing with the emotions of investing is hard. So investing is hard, and that's okay to acknowledge, and it should be. And one of the things that makes investing really hard is coming back from whenever you lose money, there's always going to be years where your investments don't do so hot. And Buffett once said that the number one rule of investing is not to lose money. And his second rule was don't forget in rule number one. So I'm curious how people like the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world or the venture-like approach, how they you know, work around this or work through this approach of you know, protecting for the downside you know, while still exposing themselves to the upside. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how these type of venture type investors can protect for the downside. I think this is a great reason that shows why understanding where you are on the valuation mindset spectrum is so important. If you are a valuation-focused investor by, by your very nature, Buffett's rule number one, don't lose money, is fantastic advice. It's the first, do no, do, do no harm, right? Focus on minimizing your downside protection. That's great advice if you're a value investor. That's terrible advice if you are a venture investor. Because to a venture investor, the biggest mistake that you can make isn't striking out nine nine times in a row. The biggest mistake you can make is not putting money into the next Amazon, is not putting money into the next uh, uh, Google. So for them, losing money, bleeding capital out a small bit is perfectly acceptable. That's, that's a part of the process. That's not their concern. Protecting the downside is not their biggest concern. Their biggest concern is getting the next mega winner into their portfolio. If that is your mindset, then you should basically ignore Buffett's advice of rule number one, don't lose money because you are going to lose money. That's part of the game if you're going to invest like a venture capitalist. That reminds me, I almost wish I could rewind and look at some of these v- VC funds and see how they weathered through something like a great financial crisis. Because another Buffett quote comes to mind here, where as investors, and you don't want your investments or you don't want businesses to have to rely on the kindness of strangers, is the way Buffett put it, in order for the business to be successful. And essentially, it means that you want the business to be self-reliant. You don't want it to have to rely on other people to essentially survive. And you think about a business at its core, it can fund its operations three different ways. It can fund it using internal cash flow, it can issue new shares, or they can take on debt. And when times get really tough, like during the great financial crisis, you know, options two and three might not really be an option. So, you know, there's no choice but for the cash flow positive companies to weather through quite well. And then a lot of other companies not weather through quite well. So that's again why the. PE ratio isn't helpful for a lot of companies that you know aren't profitable. So 
How do you think about maybe an earlier stage company, how they're able to weather through and not have to rely on the kindness of strangers? I think that the, the core of the question there for early stage companies really depends heavily on the internal philosophy of the management team. Some management teams, by their very nature, are, are more conservative when they're reinvesting in the business. They might be okay with losing a little bit of, of money, but they want to ensure that those investments are, are paying off with, with a high uh, return, and they want to minimize the amount of capital that they have to uh, raise from outside uh, investors. And also, they want to make sure that they always have ample cash flow, cash uh, on hand to survive, let's say, the next, uh, in the next three years. That is a philosophy decision of the management team. They control their internal reinvestment rate. They control how much they pour into R&D, into hiring, and all that kind of stuff, which directly impacts what kind of losses they are putting up when they're in those earlier stage. So some, so some companies really swing for the fences. They say, we're completely okay with being dependent on outside markets and outside debt markets to raise capital uh, whenever we need it. That's, that's a philosophy decision. Other ones are far more conservative and they want to reach profitability far earlier uh, after the company was founded than, than others. Uh, so one way a company can protect themselves is just by being more conservative when they're, they're raising capital to make sure they have plenty of cash and more conservative with, with hiring decisions and spending decisions to ensure they never have to rely on outside, um, outside investors. You know, Bill Gates famously, when he was running Microsoft for decades, always made sure that they had enough cash in, in, the bank, in the bank to pay off all of their bills for an entire year, assuming they never made another dollar of, of revenue. That's a philosophy decision to be so conservative financially um, at that level. And that really paid off. But again, it really depends on the philosophy of the management team of the company. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you really need to look for management teams that are able to think long-term and aren't so focused on you know, the current growth rates and the current metrics are hitting just like, I think of Bezos's letters where he was just constantly preaching the long-term, the long-term, the long-term. So I'd like to transition here to some of the analysis you've been doing on your YouTube channel. You've been doing, you know, doing a ton of updates and analysis on a number of different companies. What I love that you've been doing is plugging each company into a reverse DCF. And essentially that shows you what sort of growth the market is expecting at the current market price, which I think is super helpful for investors in thinking about whether they should trim, add to their positions or, or whatever else. So let's start with NVIDIA. Um, it's a stock that's catching a ton of people's attention here. A lot of investors that have been holding that one, they probably feel that they've struck gold as it's up over 300% since its October 2022 lows. So Using your reverse DCF model, how much growth is the market expecting from this high flyer? Yeah, the the uh, what, what's the run that Nvidia has been on has been nothing short of of remarkable. I mean, this is a company that's currently valued at over one point one billion dollars, and we should. I'm going to really timestamp when I, when I say this because this could change it at any moment. Yeah, do you want, did I say billion? Yeah, one trillion. Uh, excuse me, one one point one trillion dollars. So Nvidia is is an incredible. Incredible uh, business, fantastic competitive advantage, fantastic margins, fantastic management team. Tons of good things to say about it. Currently, the share price of Nvidia is about four hundred and sixty-eight dollars uh, per share. So, using my reverse discounted cash flow model, I see that over the trailing twelve months, Nvidia has generated about eight point one billion dollars in free cash flow. 
And if we assume a terminal growth rate for the company after 10 years of about 2% and a discount rate of 10%, so our required rate of return is is 10%, you could argue that's too high. You could argue that's too low. I'm going to say 10% return is what the investor could expect. I see that NVIDIA would have to grow its free cash flow over the next 10 years at a 36% compound annual growth rate for today's price to make sense. Now, that might not seem all that high of a number uh, if you think, uh, 36%, but to give you some perspective, that would mean that NVIDIA's um, trailing tree launch free cash flow, which is $8.1 billion today, would have to reach $176 billion in a 10 years' time. So that's a 2023x 23x growth in the company's free cash flow over the next 10 years in order for today's price to be justified and earn a a 10% return on there. Now, I'm not betting against NVIDIA doing that. I would never, never do that, nor would I short a company based solely on its, its valuations. But color me skeptical of the company being able to achieve that. And I say that as someone that has a huge admirer and believes that it's an incredible company. Yeah, I mean, the stock market's a place where you want to place bets that make a lot of sense. And you know sometimes there are bets that just don't heavily stack the odds in your favor, to put it lightly. So I want to transition to one more company here that you've covered on your, your channel. It's one we've actually been discussing here within our TIP mastermind community, where members of our audience have had the opportunity to connect. And the company is Mercado Libre which I kind of think of as the Amazon of Latin America. A very interesting company that's doing a lot of really cool things, I think. And I believe you've held this company for years and it's really been a big winner for you. So what's your updated assessment of Mercado Libre's progress? Yeah, Mercado Libre has been an incredible performer, both from a stock perspective and a business perspective. And it is a, it's a fabulously well-run business. Uh, to your point, I, I, it's, it's the eBay of Latin America and the Amazon of Latin America and the PayPal of Latin America and the Craigslist of Latin America. It really is all of those businesses uh, wound up into one. And it's been an incredible performer for me. Uh, To your point, I I first purchased Mercado Libre in 2010 or 2011. So I've held it for more than a decade and it's one of my biggest winners ever. And this company has just grown at an incredible uh, growth rate over the last 10 years. It's, it's compounded its revenue at a 44% uh, growth rate, and that number clocked in at over $11 billion last year. Now, what's interesting about Mercado Libre is that uh, it's, it's gone back and forth on the business growth cycle as, as, uh, as it's grown um, a, as a company. If you know a little bit more about Mercado Libre, they essentially started as the eBay of Latin America, and then over time, they, they started the fintech business and become the PayPal Latin America. And they've been using the profits from those businesses to build out their own like Amazon, um, Amazon delivery uh, service so they can actually de- deliver uh, packages to customers. That's an incredibly expensive thing, thing to do. Building out that infrastructure is not cheap. Because of that decision, the company's profitability over the last four or five years has been in and, in and out uh, of favor. When you throw in COVID uh, to the mix, this company has not consistently generated consistent growth and profitability over the last couple couple of years. So it has gone back and forth between the phases uh, that, that it's been in. Uh, more recently, though, the company has achieved profitability on both an earnings basis and a free cash flow basis. 
However, there's a big difference in this company between its earnings and its free cash flow. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one big reason is the company's provisions for credit loan losses. Because of their provisions have been uh, relatively high, that makes a stark difference between this company's reported earnings and its reported um, um, free cash flow. So its free cash flow is actually much higher uh, than its stated um, earnings. Um, however, when I look at Mercado Libre today, I see a business with a very strong competitive position, still growing at a very strong rate, has multiple businesses that are, that are growing um, under its wing, and I think can continue to grow at a rapid rate uh, for many years to, to come. So its valuation today, depending on how you judge it, looks fair to, to me or fair to being on the pricey side, but this is a company that I could easily see myself holding for the next five, 10 years plus. Given the drastic differences between net income, free cash flow, how do you think about which uh, metrics do you think are most valuable for valuing Mercado Libre? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a free cash flow guy. When, when, when forced to choose between earnings and free cash flow, I will take free cash flow every time. And Ricardo Libre's reported free cash flow is much higher than its reported um, net income. Now, I, I do respect the fact that this company is provisioning for, for credit losses. And it's hard for me to gauge as an outside investor whether those provisions are appropriate or too high or, or too, too low. That adds a whole nother level of complexity. So one thing you can do is just kind of go in the middle of the company's reported earnings and its free cash flow and use that as a, as a, as a profitability number for the business. But for, for me, when I'm looking at Mercado, Mercado Libre, I'm not necessarily solely focused on, on the bottom line. I want to know what the growth rate are of the companies, um, the businesses. Is the fintech business continuing to grow rapidly? Answer there is clearly yes. They're attracting new customers. They're rolling out new features. They're shipping more packages than ever. More people in Latin America are still coming, coming uh, online. So as long as the valuation doesn't get incredibly egregious, uh, I'm personally content to hold so long as the business continues to grow as it has. As I mentioned previous times on our show, you've called out why we shouldn't be using the PE for a lot of companies and Amazon's the poster child for this. So I'm curious if you sort of take the free cash flow at face value when valuing Mercado Libre or if there are any adjustments you think are necessary for a business like this. I wouldn't take the free cash flow at purely face value. When you dig into the sources of, of that free cash flow and the difference between that and the, and the earnings, I think that you need to make uh, some, some adjustments. So if I'm looking properly, I see that Mercado Libre is trading at about 17 times a price to free cash flow basis. I don't think that that figure is accurate. I think that that is understated given the dynamics that are happening between net income and free cash flow. Its price to earnings ratio, at least on a trailing basis, currently are about 98. So PE ratio of 98, price to free cash flow of about 17. Obviously, there's a lot of differences uh, between those two numbers from a valuation perspective. If you kind of take the, the, the midpoint, um, I would think it's priced appropriately given its growth potential. But again, this is a company that has to continue to execute to justify today's price. And still relating this company back to Amazon, I think about how so much of Amazon's market value, in my opinion, is derived from AWS. And it seems like Mercado Libre is sort of turned into a play like this where you purchase it with you know, the intention of thinking that this company has so much optionality and you trust the management team and the way they're able to navigate entering new markets, new regions throughout Latin America and such. So do you still foresee sort of a similar dynamic where it's almost a bet on the management team and their ability to really just almost like a call option on all these different business units? And one of them is 
almost certainly, in your opinion, able to become not obviously as big as AWS, but something like it. Absolutely. When, when I think back of the best investments that I've ever made, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, I bought for one business. And while I've owned it, they've developed a completely different business that has moved the needle from a revenue perspective. Uh, Amazon has does that does that has done that. Uh, Mercado Libre has absolutely uh, done that. Uh, Tesla is really uh, starting to do that. So I think the 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 optionality of a business, the ability of a company to launch new products and new services that open up needle moving revenue opportunities, is a very very attractive business trait. When I think about Mercado Libre, I absolutely think that it has that in spades. Well, Brian, like I mentioned, we always, always appreciate you joining us on the show here. Before we close out the show, how can the audience get in touch with you and get a hold of any resources you'd like to share? So the easiest place to connect with me is on Twitter. I'm at Brian uh, Feraldi. I do want to call out a free resource that I have created. I, I have a website that's valuation.school. The dot instead of dot com, it's dot school. If you type that into your browser, I created a free uh, seven-day email-based valuation school that goes through many of the valuation uh, multiples that we talked about here, discusses the valuation mindset spectrum, talks about the business uh, development cycle, as well as has visuals along there. So if your listeners are interested in learning more about valuation, check out valuation.school. It's free. Awesome. We'll be sure to get that linked in the show notes for those interested. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you for having me, Clay. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.